Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, tennis fans. Welcome to the Yellow Ball Network. This is where you'll find your tennis news. This is your host, Coach Denise, exploring tennis blessings and its effects on life's journey. Tennis is a wonderful sport, which could be the vehicle that takes you through life's journey. And our mentors, well, they might provide the roadmap for that journey. Who knows? On most Thursdays, I am blessed to be talking with mentors who have paved the pathway for many tennis players and coaches. Who are these mentors? Well, both, many of them are authors, like today's uh, guest. Uh, on the first Thursday of the month, we usually have Alan Fox on. On the uh, second Thursday of the month is Coach Chuck Reese. And then within about a two-month period, we rotate around, and uh, we have people like uh, Dr. Bryce Young as a regular, uh, energy coach Linda LeClaire, uh, Coach Ashley Hobson, uh, world-renowned coach. He, he'll be on next uh, Thursday, actually. We also have uh, Scott Williams, and we have uh, – Pro people like Dick Saviano on, Ed Kras, uh, Scott Ingy has been on. Uh, you don't know who you're going to listen to. And uh, it, we've been blessed, uh, although we haven't had today's guest on, uh, and I'm trying to think, I'm not sure if I was on his broadcast years ago or if he was on this one, but maybe he'll remember. He's younger than me. Of course, the nice thing about Block Talk Radio and the Yellow Ball Network is that you can listen anytime you choose to this broadcast or any of the others broadcasts, like Wednesday's American Tennis with Chuck Reese or Sunday's uh, Coach's Corner with Randy Blumenthal. I would like to thank the Yellow Ball CEO, J.P. Weber, for hosting our network. And if you're not following We Coach Tennis on Facebook, you're missing out on some useful information. And because I believe Dr. King when he said, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter, each Thursday I will add my personal views on North American tennis, and naturally you will hear my biased view that the tennis journey should be going through our high schools and colleges. Who knows? Together we may wake up that sleeping giant called high school tennis. Besides our weekly conversation, the almighty willing, you will be able to continue reading my articles in Florida Tennis Magazine. And as I previously expressed, if you disagree, email me at coachdenise.fhstca.net. Who knows? You may... Read your uh, ideas in Florida tennis, or you might hear them on uh, one of Coach Denise Sheeran, uh tennis blessings broadcasts. It would not be the first time that's happened. I would like to remind you, if someone has taken the issue of Florida tennis from your pro shop, you can always see the last issue of the magazine by going to www.floridatennis.com. Or in between issues, you can read uh, Jim Marks's articles and mine uh, uh, on Facebook. Uh, there's a lot that goes on in between issues, and uh, we try to keep you abreast uh, of going on. I see our uh, 
mentor on for today. I'll introduce him in a moment. Uh, but like we've been doing what, for six, seven months now, uh, just to prove that I'm not too old to change, uh, we're doing our commentary uh, first. And uh, here's the commentary for May 23rd. In a three-part article in Florida Tennis Magazine, I addressed the complicated issue of the lack of American college players today. Hopefully, I think there are many coaches, administrators, players, and parents who contributed to the article. As you know, you can never get anybody, everybody in the article, but I do appreciate everybody uh, that contributed. During last week's Yellow Ball Network pro broadcast, my commentary was about my opinion of being thankful for the NCAA D1 being at the USTA National Campus because if not able to attend the event, you would be able to enjoy the event on the Tennis Channel. And I don't think that would have happened if uh, they weren't there. Um, you've heard me express uh, non-complimentary views sometimes uh, about uh, the USTA, but I think we have to give credit where credit is due. Those of you attending or watching the event, most likely like me, was impressed by the quality of play on both the men's and women's team play. While I am sure a few were disappointed in their favorite college team did not win, I suspect those Americans viewing the tournament. Only other disappointment was probably the lack of men and women competing on those college teams. For some of us Americans, the only thing missing in the Stanford victory over Georgia was the lack of American women. And the next night, on the men's side, the NCAA champion Texas team had only one American player, and Wake Forest had none. Those of you who regularly listen to Coach Denise exploring tennis blessings have often heard me ask if tennis at your high school was an after-school activity or an after-school sport. You have also heard respectable college coaches and leading tennis professionals express the opinion that it, will, it was time to wake up the sleeping giant called high school tennis before college tennis emulates high school tennis. Like I previously said, there are many reasons for a limited amount of American college tennis players, but I am in agreement with most of our mentors who believe that the glory years of the ATP was when American players were going through our colleges. In less than a week, we will be enjoying the French Open, and for the first time in my memory, we will not have an American seated man. Is it not time that we have an open discussion on the challenges of our game? Is it not time that our organization leaders not listen more instead of dictating policy? We have many concerns, but maybe someone said it best when they said, the biggest concern of any organization should be when the most passionate people become quiet. It's your advantage. That's my commentary. I do see our mentor on uh, today. I would like to um, introduce him, tell you a little bit uh, about him, 
Although uh, <laughs> some of you in uh, in Florida uh, know him because we've been blessed to have him a couple of times uh, uh, at our uh, workshops uh, when I was running the uh, training for the Florida High School Tennis Coaches Association. Matter of fact, Bobby and I have been blessed to have him uh, as a guest. But he is one of those people that uh, I consider a mentor because he's willing. He's always willing to uh, give. Uh, Coach Bill P- uh, Patton is somebody that, uh, well, uh, most of you know that listen to the broadcast. Uh, I'm a fanatic about books. Uh, I, I believe uh, I, I gave them out more than uh, – I gave out trophies during my 20 years of coaching uh, uh, high school tennis. But uh, the author of his newest book is The Art of Coaching. Uh, no, no, his first book is The Art of Coaching High School Tennis. And uh, then he's also written uh, Playing Sports Right. Uh, they were two books that I recommended to uh, people. A matter of fact, when we had the uh, team coaching certification program uh, for the high school coaches, the other coach in high school tennis was one of those books you got credit for. Uh, and uh, his new book is called The Athletic, the Athlete-Centered Coach. Uh, and truthfully, I'm only about three-quarters of the way through the book right now. I've been running crazy with things lately. Uh, but truthfully, uh, it looks like uh, another bestseller to me. Uh, Bill Pan, for those of you that don't know, uh, Bill, I don't know if you know, but our audience goes to, uh, well, it goes all over the world, but in Europe, I know we're, we have in England and in uh, Ireland and Germany, we've been blessed to have uh, people responding before. Uh, so uh, they don't have the high schools over there, but I'm sure they could uh, still. Uh, uh, well, this new book I've seen uh, you've taken a different approach on, so this is interesting. But Bill Pan is a tennis professional and is currently coaching in his eight different high school. He has 29 years of experience in the field, and uh, he is the uh, tennis professional at uh, help me with the pronunciation. Was it Seagwell Country Sequoia. Club in Oakland, California? What is it again? Yeah, Sequoia Country Club. Uh, Sequoia, okay. He has coached at several schools and many great results, and mainly the players uh, that he's had had a great time maximizing their game. And I think that's the thing that most of the quality coaches are look, looking for is uh, having the people – uh, get the best out of their game, and uh, once they do that, then they, I think they have a good shot at life's journey. So, Bill, it's good to talk with you again. Um, hopefully, I, I was hoping, I know you were in uh, Florida uh, last year, but uh, we missed you because of some medical problems uh, Bobby and I have been going through, but hopefully we'll see you again soon. Yeah, looking forward to it. And thanks for having me on the show, John. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the new book? It's uh, 
uh, in my opinion, you've taken a different approach than the other. But for what made you think of, uh, you know, what is the athletic center of coaching? And uh, are enough coaches uh, aware of it? And are they doing it? And if not, why aren't more people doing it? Well, okay. The first thing is that it's not a phrase that I created, but it is something that I started to see popping up more and more. And this is a, an idea that is emerging, is that the coach's sole job really is to focus on the athlete and help them to become better. And, you know, there are things about human nature that, dictate that that isn't always the case. And uh, one of those things is that about 70% of people self-talk, the things that they say to themselves in their head is negative. And so it's pretty hard to, um, it's pretty hard to coach an athlete and help them succeed to their best level. If you've got a very negative mindset so so we it delves a lot into that into a coach establishing a stronger better more positive mindset and and the other one is i think um especially i relate to as a younger coach um you know wanting to prove something wanting to show everybody that i was good and and doing things out of sort of an ego-driven um, mindset, which isn't altogether bad. I mean, you know, ego is not a bad thing. It's a neutral thing. But as I go along, and I actually, and my, and my self-concept is stronger, I don't have to, I, I'm not worried about proving myself to anyone, really, Um then it, what it does is it helps me to focus more on the athlete. So, so it's really about finding all the different ways that we can put the focus on something else and taking the focus off of that, whether it's championships or medals or college scholarships or, you know, any of these other outcomes and look at the athlete as, as someone who's going to go on from here. Uh, the athlete has a whole life to live. So whether we meet them when they're 8 or 11 or 14 or 18, we have our time on their timeline. Uh, I think it's, sometimes we turn it around and we say they have out of their time on our timeline. So, you know, and then you also – this is also a general sports book. So – so I cover difficult things. I mean, two of the hardest chapters that I had to write were about uh, Dr. Larry Nasser of the women's gymnastics team and Aaron Hernandez, um, former star NFL tight end with the New England Patriots, and, and discussing them in sort of a philosophical setting of um, where do they fit in an athlete-centered program with athlete-centered coaches, because I don't think they do. Mm-hmm. That's, a good, that's a good point. I assume that's one of the reasons why then you felt a need uh, 
to write this book. I think they, you know everybody is is different, and uh, and I I suspected I know my coaching views changed from when I started until you know today, and uh, um, as we grow, uh, we all need to sit there and uh, think about are we still doing what we want to do number one and are we doing what we thought what we set out to do you know and that that is a great observation because really one of the things that coaches fail to do well is establish their own coaching philosophy and coming up with their why statement why why do i want to do this where do I want to go with this? Where do I want to take my players, you know, along this timeline of theirs, you know? So, um, and it's, and it's easy to lose track. I mean, I have, I have fallen off the rails before. So one of the things, another thing challenging about the book was writing some, you know, I, I write some stories that I've observed from afar in the world of sports, whether it's, you know, football, baseball, basketball, uh, Olympics, uh, or, you know, and tennis. And then I also write some personal stories from times that, uh, things turned out differently than I expected, but they were better because I was open to something else happening than what I thought would happen. I hope, I hope that makes sense. Oh, I think it definitely does. I think one of the things I always admired about talking to you, we, we've been blessed to be able to sit down and uh, over bread uh, discuss things before when you were here, and I always enjoyed that because I think that you're just honest re- remarks that you make. And uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, we see different things, and uh, we all have success stories we could tell, but uh, I know the ghosts I have are the times that uh, I did something and it didn't work out right. And I wonder, you know, and your, your decisions are, are not always right. And you say, would that have, would I have lost that player would, if I didn't take those actions? So uh, it, it, it's not that we shouldn't talk about our successes. I think we should. But we should look at ourselves, too, and think about, you know, was that the best action to take? Right. Well, while you're saying that, I'm thinking of the phrase, sometimes sometimes you win and sometimes you learn. And I actually really dislike that phrase because it, what it does, it discounts learning from winning and also discounts learning how to win. So you, you can't really learn how to win by losing. So you have to learn how to win by winning. And so it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting thing, but I find that we have these little conventional sayings that we say that they don't really work, but we say them anyway, and they have, they're filled with flaws. And if we thought a little harder and redirected our minds a little bit better, then we would get more of the results that we want. But, you know, <coughs> you know, pardon me. So the other, another interesting thing is that there are some stories where I did, did exactly the right thing and it worked, but the player didn't care. And then there were times that the player wasn't doing what I asked and it was, 
and it was stupefying to me. But then I discovered they were actually doing what I had told them previously. So, so then I, you know, we, we stopped and we said, Oh, wow, I guess I trained you too good on that before. And then, then there were times players did things that I absolutely would not, uh, would not condone or recommend, but the player made it work and they did it at a critical time. And so, you know, after that match, I said to that girl, I said, wow, that was an amazing shot. Don't ever do that again. Right. But, <laughs> but it was, it, but it was pivotal. It was pivotal. And it, and just about everybody had an aneurysm as she ran from the baseline, get this, put, use your tennis court imagination. She's in the deuce court. She's at the baseline. The opponents hit a high ball that's going to her partner's forehand volley, and she runs 30 feet in to hit a backhand volley ahead of her. But because the angle was something the other team wasn't prepared for, it was this bold surprise move that changed everything. And then they won three straight games and, and sealed the match. So, you know, it's it's not something you'd ever recommend someone would do is to run that far for a backhand volley in front of someone's forehand volley. Right. Is that one of uh, the reasons when I would think, why, why did you feel you should write this book? Uh, what, what was one of the, I imagine you have many reasons. Can you uh, put it in one or two reasons why? Yeah, well, I think first um, – First, first off, I didn't, I didn't feel like I wanted to write the book. I felt like it was necessary. So, um, you know, I'd heard the phrase used in different places, and I, and I really felt like it has a place in coaching for everyone to kind of point to that and say, the athlete-centered coach, it's what we all can aspire to be. And, you know, for those of you who want to catch me doing wrong because I wrote it in the book and I'm not doing it, uh, good for you because I mean it's it's a hard book and and I'm I'm going to be challenged to try to live up to what's in there. Um, so so I think it was the promoting of the concept and then also a way for coaches to make themselves more valuable, uh, make themselves more valuable to everyone because when you're really going at it with all your focus on the athlete and their outcomes and their timelines and the skill sets that they need to be successful in life, um, then people will take notice. The right people are going to pay attention to that, and you're going to attract a certain um, sort of silent majority of people who really are hungering for that, but they're stuck with the other coach who's doing it, you know, solely for ego or solely for profit or you know, other other bad motives. Well, you know, but, I mean, our profession, when you think of it, though, I agree with you. I don't disagree. I, I agree with you 100%. But I think what we have to remember is that uh, our profession is made up of humans, and humans are, you know, are human, and there are all types of them, and uh, that's why it's uh, – hard to sit there and say this is the absolute way you should have to do this because people are all different. I remember one time I had a 
young girl from eight years old, and when she was in high school and taking her to a couple of uh, uh, games, the AAU games throughout the country and everything, knowing her, I knew she had a nervous habit. When she got uptight, she would start laughing. And I remember one time I thought she comes to the fence, and I didn't think nobody was there. And I said to her, I won't use her name, but I said to her, if I hear you laugh at all during the this rest of this match, I'm letting the trainer know now that she has to be with you tomorrow because you're going to run until we have to put you in ice. And she went back on the court, handled it the way I thought it was, but meanwhile there was a young freshman behind me, and she said, Coach, I, I, I think I would cry if you ever said that to me. And I said, I probably would never say it to you. So for the next few years, I had to be careful of everything I said to this young lady. Yeah, that's no, and I I think the word you said there was absolute, and that that is ab that is true. So, the book is a so it's a it's a collection of 107 essays, and each each chapter is one, two, three. You know, maybe I think the biggest chapter is five pages. So you can read one chapter and think about one thing, and. You know, that's the power of it is that it's, there are no absolute answers. You know, I, I discuss a certain topic. I give you as a complete a view as I can with my limited point of view. And then I give space at the bottom for you to write, you know, what's your biggest takeaway from that and or what's your action item. So it's really about what the coach does with it and what they take away from it. Um, one of the best comments I've received on the reviews of the art of coaching high school tennis was from a guy who said, I don't agree with, I don't see eye to eye with Bill on everything he writes here. And I'm like, that's perfect. That's absolutely perfect. You know, because uh, it was general Patton who said, um, if everybody's thinking the same, somebody's not thinking. Right. So it's, it's really to spur thought and to try to come up with some really clear thoughts on what works best and then to open it up for people to argue with me. And then uh, hopefully we can have some good discussions, arguments, and, and refine it. I'm actually looking forward to doing a second edition after I get the comments from people who've read it. Ah, very good. Well, I, personally, I don't want to argue with you. I, I do like the fact, and it's because of my own thing, I usually try to read things in chapters. I mean, I'll put it, um, you know, go back to it after a chapter and go to the next one, and your chapters are so short. Uh, and, and truthfully, from my judgment of, Knowing Bill the way I think I know him, I know there's always something. I I don't know anything. I, I assume there's something else in his mind that I misread. So the reason I'm only three quarters way through this right now is I've gone back at the end of every chapter and looked at it again. I'm saying, okay, what am I missing here that Bill said in that? That chapter seemed too easy. <laughs> Oh, pardon me. Um, 
Well, I think that's funny. Too easy. So uh, don't worry. There are some chapters. Oh, there's not be many harder. of them. Yeah, there's yeah, not but, many of them, but, but every now and then it but, comes up, and that's, uh, to me, I find that fascinating. But then knowing that the, the chapters are short, why not go back and reread it again? And there's a lot of things. And, you know, my wife said, why are you taking, like I'm in the middle of uh, Hillsborough College taking a course again on American history. God, you've taken American history how many times by now? But Wow. I just, why not? You know, why not learn more? Let me get to the next thing. You know, uh, what is okay. uh, what was the source of your inspiration there? What made you say, you know, who influenced you to say, okay, uh, I've got to sit there and write this? Um, well, I think one of the chief influences is uh, Sterling Strother. Um, but even before that was a good friend of mine um, who the book is dedicated to. Um, his name was Dennis Fogg, and he was he was a great friend. He and I were roommates, and uh, he was a great basketball coach. And he, he taught me how to play basketball, um, which I thought was something that was impossible. So – the way he taught me how to play basketball became a model for how I was going to teach everything moving forward because we would go play. And then he would, after we played, he would say, Hey, you played like this, but here's one thing for you to work on from this game. So work on your ability to catch and shoot without dribbling. And so I would do that, and uh, and and that was a really amazing to see how how he broke that down for me, and um, you know to the point where I actually became a fairly accomplished recreational basketball player, which was fun. Um, and then it was during the time that we, he and I were roommates that I applied for my first tennis coaching job, and he was he was the first one who said. I, I think you could be a really good coach. So, um, so that affirmation from him especially uh, really gave me something to stand on moving forward because it's really tough when you first get started. Um, and then, you know, I think about people like uh, Dick Gould and um, Tim Galway and uh, Steve Kerr of the Golden State Warriors. And, and I look at these coaches, um, and Bob Melvin of the Oakland A's, one of the great, great managers, and each of them has an element of being incredibly athlete-centered. And so what they engender in their players is this willingness to play for them, that the player <coughs> really wants to do well, or the coach because of that the strength of that relationship. So, uh, so that I think those are some of the influences. But you know, there's there's no way in you know in uh, 49 years of watching sports and being fascinated with coaches that I could name all of them. But you know, I feel like my whole life I have studied coaches. 
Well, that's uh, interesting because the coaching changes who you coach and why, what game. And I don't know if you know it or not, but I came from a basketball background, coaching basketball. And when I, quite frankly, when I went through the PTR and went with my son, I was always I always tell people I'm the other John Denise, and, and I probably learned more from my son as he was one of the best coaches I did, but. Uh, new, but uh, the thing, the influences I had in basketball, uh, Dennis Vandemer encouraged me to say, no, you know, you're right, and we, you know, we all have our own theories, and uh, and he would say, you know, I think you have something to, you know, go out and find out. I, I was ready to go home. I was talking with a gentleman who's a very famous gentleman. I won't say who he is. And I was at the bar, and my son was out with a bunch of young people. And uh, uh, he said, what are you thinking about, Coach? And Because uh, I was the oldest one there by far. And I says, I'm thinking about going home. <laughs> and he says, why? And I said, look at these people. I never played tennis before. I come from a basketball. And uh, he convinced me to stay there, and uh, thank God. Yeah, I mean, isn't that interesting? And and part of what the athlete-centered coach is about is catching people at these moments where it's this way or that way, right? Mm-hmm. It's the exit or it's deeper in, right? Uh, right? Who was it? I think it was Churchill who said, "If you're in the, if you feel like you're in the middle of hell, keep going," right? Or somebody right. else said the only way the only way around is through. True. And the foreword to the book, you know, tells the story of Sterling coming along at at a time when I was ready to change to a different career. You know, I was I was not having the success in my tennis career that I needed to have for my family. And um so I was actively looking at and I was sort of going through a phase of burnout and then this sort of chance encounter with uh, Sterling in Northern California kind of led to one thing after the other. And as a result of that, that's when I began writing the art of coaching high school tennis. So, um, so that was, that 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 was summer of 2000. Thank you. That was the summer of 2013 that I was actively looking to leave tennis. And then I got invited to this backyard barbecue of tennis pros. And I went reluctantly. And, um, and then the rest is history, you know. So I, so I started writing the book in October of 13 and finished it in March of 14. <coughs> and then it was you that gave me a hand up because you were one of the early adopters of that book. So, um, so that made a huge difference being able to go to Florida and speak and, and, you know, get the reception that I got there. That, that helped me a lot to, to realize that what I was writing resonated with people. They, you know, they, they were made better because of it. Uh, that made a difference for me. As a coach, in my type of coaching, I'm always looking for practical advice to 
you know, to give in general because everybody is different. But is there um, <coughs> how, how do learning theories impact learning? Do you feel? Well, you know, it's it's funny because I it's I hope it's not a feeling, uh, but um, you know, more should be done to teach coaches learning theories because because that can make the job so much easier. Um, so yeah, I can I have some practical advice for everybody. Um, so one one learning theory that's really amazing is something called the zone of proximal development. And um, so in layman's terms, that basically means that when the kids learn from each other, it's easier. So, so like, let's say you have um, a 17 year old senior on the court and they're really good at the net, but they had their time of struggling to be a good net player. And, and you, you have them work with, and explain some stuff to a 14-year-old. Because the experience is so close and so relatively new, then then the younger player starts to see it as being more doable. Um, not only that, but then the one teenager can translate what the adult is saying into a language that more easily is accommodated by the younger players. So, so pretty much every day that I'm on the court, there's a time of question and answer. So, you know, we like, let's say we're talking about doubles. All right, everybody, let's get together. What, what do you know about doubles? Right. And then, you know, they give their answers and then, and so they're teaching during that time. And the people that don't know that answers are learning it from someone other than me. So I'm saving energy. They're engaging the zone of proximal development. Um, that's another thing. There's another thing called prior knowledge. So one of the things that I think is universal that everyone hates, but let me know if you, if you don't hate this, um, is being told the same thing over again that you already know full well. I think most people get bored. So, so if I get, I think it's a challenge, and I think it's. uh, And and it's funny you say that. And I was in. I'm thinking of being in Hilton Head, and I'm at the front row because I always like to, probably because of little hearing. And I'm sitting next to Linda, and this guy is saying everything that is just. To me, it was common sense, so easy. And as you know, you have your choice of where you can go, and that was my choice of where to go. And during the break, I said to Linda, God, is that the most boring? And she said to me, she said, maybe you're not focused enough, John. And Ooh, I, so I didn't leave. And uh, he actually... <laughs> Either he actually got more interested in the second half, or I got more focused. Yeah, I mean, there's so many different things that go into it. And, you know, great conferences have things for people at various levels. I mean, one one thing that is, I think, a problem is when veteran coaches complain because there is 
um, content geared to new coaches. And so that's when I say, well, maybe you need to go to the other thing that's happening. I mean, you know, so, so a great conference does have a wide range of offerings for different coaches who have, who coach in different situations with different levels of players, different ages, all of that. So, um, you know, I, I think that's a, that's an interesting thing. So if we come back to it, though, so if I, if I ask my group, what do you know about doubles, now the kid who, instead of hearing it for the, for the 17th time, gets to say it, now he's the teacher because he knows it well. He feels better about that. The kids will almost generally uh, enjoy loving to hear from their teammates more than the coach. You save yourself a lot of energy. And then a funny thing happens. You can keep asking questions, and then all of a sudden you ask a question that nobody knows the answer to. <laughs> and that, at that moment, an interesting thing happens. Either most of the kids on the team are going to become extremely curious about something they don't know, or they're going to rebel and they're going to, and they're going to not want to learn something. And you'll get a very quick gauge on what kind of team you have at that, at that moment. But I, I love it when I ask a question, nobody knows the answer. I give them 10, 20 full seconds. And I look around to make sure everybody's thinking. And then I go, all right, are you ready for the answer? And it's it's a way that's a way to invoke their curiosity. So so then that's the Socratic method of asking questions. Um, so so now another interesting thing is that education means education comes from the word educos, and educos means to draw from within. So as educators on the tennis court. Or in on the, on whatever sports court we're we're on, our job is to draw out the information out of the players. But what do we do instead? You know, instead we use a medical model. Like the, you know, these kids are sick, and I have the medicine, so I'm going to give them the medicine and make them well. Here, take your medicine. And not too many people want to do that. Or we take an approach like we have a drill and we drill a little hole in their head and we have our funnel and we have our our bottle of information that we pour into their heads. And they're somehow supposed to assimilate that. But the problem there is that they're not engaged. So, so you've got the zone of proximal development. You have prior knowledge. You have um, the Socratic method. Right, which which creates more engagement, um, and then there's a, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Keep going. Okay, so then here's another one, and uh, probably somebody's going to want to argue with me on this, and that's fine. I say bring it. So come talk to me. But um, Dr. Howard Gardner of Harvard University Education Department came up with a theory called multiple intelligences. And it's a theory. It's not a law. So, so, so it's, you know, it's something to think about. 
But his theory is that people have seven to ten intelligences. So he doesn't even put a finite number on it for anyone. You know, and those are uh, visual, kinesthetic, uh, intrapersonal, interpersonal, environmental, rhythmical, uh, you know, musical, rhythmical, mathematical, logical, you know, environmental. Maybe I said something over again and probably left some out. But, but we have all of these things that we have going on in our head. But he became uh, actually pretty angry when that got boiled down and made too simple and people began to try to identify finite learning styles. So when, if, if I ever, there was a time when I used to put people in a box of, oh, you're a visual learner, so I'm only going to teach you visually because that's your strong suit. When in reality, what I also need to do is help teach the kinesthetic as well and the musical, rhythmical, and allow a player to start to experience the game on many levels and using more parts of their brain and using more parts of your brain is more healthy and has, you know, so many more positive uh, effects for your lifetime. So what I generally do is early on, I try to find out what somebody's strength. And then I also try to find which is their next strongest and try to try to help boost that up. And then I'll try to go after, after they gain some confidence, I'll try to find a weakness in how they learn and cause them to go through a little bit of cognitive dissonance to, to try to have to figure it out a different way with a different part of their brain. Um, the one most there actually, there are two common mistakes that I see on a tennis court mentally. One paralysis by analysis. So players are out there trying to find out, what was their mistake and they want to correct their mistake instead of that, instead of trying to analyze and correct what they ought to do is they ought to simply be aware of what they're doing and how, as they change what they're doing, they get different results. So it's a different mindset. It's more of being a scientist and, experimenting and failing and trying and, and trying again until you accidentally sort of do it right one time and then remembering that one. You know, and then, then another thing that people do is they use subjective judgments. And this is something that you can read about in the inner game of tennis. You know, people judge their shot. They say, oh, good shot. And then they get excited and then they miss the next one. And then they say, bad shot in their head. And then, then they'll probably say, okay, I have to try harder to make a good shot. And then they start to stiffen up and do worse, and they, they end up going down the toilet. So I try to get my players to move away from judging anything on, on the, in the sport subjectively. And I try to get them to just very objectively observe what they're doing. And then, then we can discuss what are they doing. And then do you see how when you do this, then you get that, right? 
And then they go, oh, yes. So I'm like, okay, so we let's try something else. And then they discovered on their own, and then who owns that lesson? The person owns it because they were the ones that made the discovery. The coach was just simply there guiding it, you know, facilitating the discovery of how to do it. Do you ever have you ever used your players to help you with that or ask, you know, what they thought of the situation, especially if you're seeing somebody kind of beating up on themselves or <coughs> Oh yeah, all the time. In fact sometimes I get chided by my players, you know. Um in my generally in a first lesson with somebody I tend to be a little bit talkative. And so I've had some people say, um, hey, I really need you to stop talking because I'm spending so much time listening to you that I can't do anything. So that's another interesting thing that plays into this is different people have different abilities to process information verbally, right? I mean, like those kids that can raise their hand as soon as the question is asked and then other kids need, you know, one, 1,000, two, 1,000. Oh, I get it. You know, but by that time, the, the answer's already been given and the so-called smart kid got it right. But, but the frustrated kid who just verbally processes a little bit slower is just as intelligent, but can't come up with the answer as fast. Yeah. No, that's a valuable point. I did. I like the idea of getting the team involved. I, I like the uh, the way you use stories and, uh, you know, and your teaching and, and what, the, you know, the underlying principles, what you're trying to do. Uh, for you, every practice, I would hand out a, a quote or a short story from a pro. And every player before practice would have to read it, and then they would sign it. And then at, uh, needless to say, that was at the end because at the end of practice, coach would be asking, uh, what does that mean to you? And uh, so now you're getting the kids explaining what they see. And sometimes you go, uh, you know, to to find out if they're doing it. I would sit there with certain people that were always that first that you mentioned, uh, you know, one more second, they have an answer. I'd say give somebody else first. But, uh, for instance, yeah, little thing, absolutely. Like no, I remember that, one that's time I had in there. Coach Denise is looking for the reason with uh, this year's team, our number one goal is to uh, repeat as uh, district champion. And, uh, you know, how many people agree with that? And there was, you know, maybe one-third of the team. And I said, have I ever talked about that? Have I talked about winning and we're going to be winners and you're going to be a winner and winning is going to help you through life journey? Have I talked to you about repeating that this year? And, uh, you know, so you once the kids start finding out, you know, sometimes you have to be careful the way you word it. And sometimes I would word it just to make sure that they're reading it and not just signing it. Well, what does that mean to you? Yeah. Meaning is is pretty much everything, and yeah, I mean, I generally tell at least at least three or four good stories in a week, and 
generally I will tell stories about players who've played for me before. Because why? Because then it's something that my players can relate to. You know, sure. they, they can understand a story about another team that's going through something that's similar to what they're going through. <clears throat> you know, or, or a player who was, you know, facing a certain setback and how did they handle that? And, or they made a breakthrough. And why? How did they make their breakthrough? And then, and then at, we, get, we get done with the story, and I go, all right, what about that story resonates with you? And, you know, and I, and I go, we're not leaving until I get three or five different answers. So, um, right. you know, and at first it's like pulling teeth, but after a little while they get used to the fact that they're going to have to do some thinking, you know. Right. Um, you know, and th- this is something I think coaches can also see. The athlete-centered coach helps the athlete to think their stuff through, so that they are the owners of the expertise, because they're the ones that are going to have to hit the the shot at match point down. The coach doesn't hit it, right? So, so we, the more we can do to empower kids to be the decision makers and the owners of the information then then the more that they can go out and translate it into their performance but if it's just an idea that's being enforced on them by the coach then you're going to get a whole range of obligation rebellion you know hesitancy reluctance right so it's about getting that buy-in yeah. <laughs> I, one, one thing that's one thing that's funny for me is how is how easily I get my players to come to the net, and other coaches complain all day long about how they don't know how to do that, and it's really not that hard, because all really you need to do is give them enough exposure and not criticize them so much. <coughs> and then, <coughs> pardon me. And they'll find a way to be successful. Why do you get a drink of water? And I'm going to give you about two minutes to end this. Here. But let me uh, just tell uh, uh, the people that uh, next uh, week, well, first of all, I see uh, a couple of people that uh, hung on here. I remind everybody, I appreciate that you probably have something important to say, uh, but for the last about four years, I don't take calls uh, in between. I only answer callers that I know who they are because I'm just computer illiterate and it takes me too long to react. And I had a bad experience about four years ago. So I appreciate you staying on. Hopefully, uh, if you have something uh, that you want to say, uh, send me an email, Coach Denise, uh, you know, FHSTCA. Uh, at att.net, and I will. I, I do want to hear what you have to say. Uh, but the only calls that I take during the broadcast are you know, sometimes we have multiple guests on, and the calls I know. So I've seen some people hang up. Uh, a couple of you that hung on, I appreciate that. I'm sure you found uh, Bill as interested as I did, but I'm not going to uh, answer the call. Uh, next week, our uh, uh, mentor is Ashley Hobson. Uh, Ashley Hobson is a 
another person like uh, Bill that's uh, been uh, uh, training at our, uh, for the Florida High School Tennis Coaches Association. Matter of fact, three years ago at the uh, uh, USTA campus, uh, he was the feature of the whole thing. He's a heck of a gentleman. He's just continuously given. He has uh, over uh, 30 years of ATP, WTA, ITF. Uh, coaching experience. He's coached in 60 countries. He's a uh, Davis Cup and a Federation Cup uh, coach. He uh, was the Hong Kong China National uh, coach for five years. And uh, many people consider him uh, the best racket man, but he's, he's more than that. Uh, those of you that, if you've ever been to uh, Inspiration Academy, it's just. Uh, an extraordinary place, and he's an extraordinary man, and I think you're going to find him just as enjoyable as you do uh, Bill today. Uh, I would like to remind everybody uh, that uh, you could tune in anytime when we're through with this. Uh, I will uh, post this on the, about 50 coaching organizations throughout the coach. Just go when you see the yellow ball logo, just hit the yellow ball logo, and you'll be able to hear it at any uh, time that uh, you want to uh, uh, listen to it. The almighty willing, I will be talking with you again uh, next week. Uh, there is an interest in um, uh, Florida Tennis Magazine should be out in about two weeks. Uh Jim March, the editor, says everybody's not going to love me, uh, but the truth of the matter is uh, everybody's not hasn't loved me uh, for years as long as my family and my best friends do. That's all right. But I think there's some things that had to be said about uh, high school uh, tennis in the USTA. And I've given you my opinion, and I respect yours, and I'll be glad to listen to yours. Bill, we have about two minutes left. If you could tell people how to reach you, and you you, you have the last two minutes. Uh, go ahead. <clears throat> All right. So I, I think the last thought that I want to leave with people is to consider sort of on a daily basis is what am I doing about me? Because with me it often is. Or is it about them? And, you know, taking that moment to redirect towards the player uh, can make all the difference. And then, yeah, you can find me on Facebook. Um, pretty easy to find there. And then also you can email me at 720degreecoaching at gmail.com, 720degreecoaching at gmail.com. And I'm Bill Patton 720 on Instagram. Very good, and I think that last thing is the important thing. It's we have to remember it's about the uh, the student. You know, if we're if we're all leaking, thinking of them, I think that's the important thing. I know a few weeks ago I was accused of being. Uh, uh, you know, I explained my Judeo-Christian values that I was brought up and influenced, and do you have to be a Christian to coach? No, you don't have to be a Christian to coach. But I think if you coach from a loving perspective and, and you know, looking to give from, to them, 
then it's easier. And if you don't know who your students are, uh, it's hard to love them. You've got about 30 seconds left. Bill, did I lose you? I guess I lost Bill. Well, you enjoyed him like I did, and I will talk to you next week, the Almighty Willen. Bye-bye.